0: and welcome to your weekly Free American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, with Derek Davison. Uh, And we're just going to get right into it today. So, Derek, why don't you let us know what's been happening in Afghanistan, and particularly with the uh, reopening and then uh, pretty immediate closing of girls' schools?
1: Uh, Sure. So, I mean, as people presumably are aware, um, Afghanistan is struggling Mightily, uh, the U.S. has frozen central bank reserves, most of its central bank reserves. Uh, uh, well, it's f- really frozen all of them, but claimed a large portion of them to to do with it what it will. Uh, the uh, international community has been reluctant to engage uh, with the Afghan government now that it's run by the Taliban. Uh, humanitarian relief organizations are trying to find ways to to operate in Afghanistan. And it, it's been a huge humanitarian crisis. There are uh, thousands, well, millions of people at at acute risk of uh, starvation and critical situations uh, dependent on foreign aid that isn't coming. Uh, One of the conditions that the international community has uh, laid out for the Taliban, if they want to gain some level of international recognition, some level of cooperation, normal relations—not uh, fully normal, but something more normal than the complete ostracization uh, that they're they're dealing with right now—is to allow girls back into school. Now, the Taliban has been letting girls attend elementary school classes, um, which is something they they did the last time uh, I believe was was the way they operated last time they they uh, were in. Power in Afghanistan. They let girls attend up through sixth grade. And then beyond that, uh, they were not permitted to attend school. Uh, The Taliban in the 90s uh, kept saying, you know, we're just, we just need to figure out how to do this in a way that's compliant with uh, Islamic law and Afghan culture and and tradition. Uh, But once we do that, you know, then we'll definitely let girls back into school. They never did. Uh, Of course, they were, you know, removed from power by the United States in 2001. Uh, They've been saying the same thing since taking power in August that, you know, we just want to find a way to do this that's in concert with, uh, with, uh, Islam and in concert with Afghan tradition, once we figure that out, uh, we'll definitely let them back into into school. So they had announced uh, a few days ago, over the weekend, I believe, um, that they were going to reopen all Afghan schools to all children this week, uh, presumably including girls at the middle and high school level, uh, which they did on Wednesday. Uh, They reopened all Afghan schools to all students, uh, girls were allowed to attend, and then a few hours later they closed the girls' schools and sent them all back home uh, and are now saying they're still working on uh, a way to to make this compliant. And, and they focused on the issue of school uniforms now they, they they need to find a school uniform design that's compliant with islamic law and afghan tradition uh, and then they promise they'll they'll let girls back into school uh so you know one of the the big items on the international checklist uh the taliban uh, have managed to uh go from an act that could have bought them a lot of international goodwill to an act that is going to buy them a, a lot of condemnation, has already bought them a fair amount of condemnation, uh, and that I think actually is going to make their international status worse than it was before.
0: So Derek, what do you think is, is going to actually happen with this? Do you think it's, it's just going to be a, a sort of seesaw, or do you think there's going to be an
1: actual move, a permanent move on this? What's
0: your take?
1: So I, I honestly, I mean, I don't understand the logic of handling it this way. I don't understand the logic of announcing that you're going to do this and then uh, hours later after you've done it, uh, rescinding that decision. Uh, it's, it's sort of baffling on, a, on, on its face. Uh, as I say, I think it's going to actually make things worse. Like even if they let girls back into school tomorrow, they're not going to get back the uh, whatever goodwill they they managed to to blow on Wednesday uh, with this decision. Uh, if I had to guess, uh, and uh, this is very speculative, uh, but if you're if you're among the the folks who you know shortly after the Taliban. Took power in August. We're looking at you know trying to read the tea leaves and uh, you know talking about factionalization within the Taliban and differences of opinion between uh, sort of the battlefield uh, guys, the real hardliners, and the uh, the more urbane kind of uh, uh, bureaucratic types. Uh, this this could be a sign or, or a sort of a, a surfacing of those tensions, and, and it may be that you had one faction of the Taliban that made the case for letting girls back in, and somehow uh, managed to get that enacted. And then the other faction or another, you know, a more hardline faction stepped in and said, no, we're not doing this and, and shut it down a few hours later. Uh, if that's the case, then I think this is going to be a perpetual thing. Uh, if the Taliban can't internally come to some agreement on, on how to manage these issues, then they're just going to keep having these problems over and over again, where they, you know, they go in one direction and then another, or they, they don't go in any direction. They're sort of just kind of arguing it out, uh, amongst themselves you know i i would i would say if there weren't the example of uh the previous taliban government in the 90s to to work off of i would say uh you know yeah it's it's entirely possible that they could come up with uh, a uniform that satisfies everybody and finally you know that would be the last hurdle and they'll let girls back into school again but given the level of excuse making that went on in the 90s and the basically flat out refusal to let girls go back to school uh i i suspect that's the direction that uh that they're heading this this iteration of the taliban seems a little savvier about international opinion and about what you know uh, what it can do to to not be isolated um and yet you know apparently uh, at least based on this incident, can't seem to get out of its own way uh, to actually uh, actually do the things that, that they need to do to get uh, some international recognition. Great. So,
0: well, maybe not so great, but thank you for letting us know. Uh, and let's move on to the recent North Korean missile test.
1: Yes, uh, so we will have a, a much more in depth discussion about South Korea coming up in our interview with uh, with Tammy Kim. For, so, and in uh, the bonus app, look this forward to that. Def- and in uh, the Tammy this week's Kim bonus episode, yes. disease, yeah. Um, but to to explain what's happened just uh, today, uh, Thursday, March twenty fourth, uh, it appears that North Korea, the North Korean military, has conducted an intercontinental ballistic missile test for the first time since twenty seventeen. Uh, it uh, conducted basically what's what's a it's a trajectory test um, so uh, you know in order not to fire your ICBM at anyone in particular Killer, you launch it uh, far up in the sky, and then you know let it come come down and splash down. It splash down in the uh, you know n- relatively close to Japan, not close enough to be alarming, but uh, in the sort of sea off the east coast of, of North Korea, um, and the. Trajectory—you you can then extrapolate from you know how high you got, how high it went, and uh, you know what—I'm not an expert on these things—but you can extrapolate from that uh, what kind of range this missile would have if it were fired uh, horizontally, basically at, at a at a target. Uh, so that appears to be what's happened. There's some disagreement about. What missile has been tested? If people who've been tracking North Korean uh, rocket launches and weapons tests will know that uh, the North Koreans have, you know, in late February and then early this month conducted two tests uh, and then attempted to conduct a third, but it failed uh, of what they called a satellite launch system, but that the US and South Korea both claimed were components of the Hwasong 17, which is North Korea's largest uh, and most powerful ICBM. Uh, it's possible that that's the device they tested on Thursday, although I, I have seen uh, some informed speculation from sort of uh, North Korea watchers and uh, missile experts and, and the like, uh, that they may have actually tested a, a somewhat less, slightly less powerful ICBM, the Hwasong-15. Uh, it doesn't look like it. the missile had... A, a payload, basically, so no warhead or no mock warhead to kind of uh, test its payload carrying capacity. Uh, and if that's the case, if it if they launched it without that extra weight attached, then it's possible that uh, the slightly less powerful Hwasong fifteen could look like. Uh, a fully loaded Hwasong seventeen. So that seems to be uh, where the speculation is coming from, as far as I can tell. Uh, either way, I mean these are these are both missiles that can theoretically hit the continental United States. The fifteen, even if it, you know, the continental US is at the the limits of its range, can still certainly hit um, Alaska, let's say, or other parts of the United States and, and, uh, you know, places like Guam and, and, uh, you know, U S territories in the Pacific. Uh, so either, you know, either way it's, an, it's, uh, reverting back to a more alarming time in the U S North Korea relationship, sort of pre Trump and Kim sending letters to each other, uh, back to the days of really, really high tensions. And this is definitely the kind of test, uh, that will get American attention.
0: And it does seem like Biden hasn't really made North Korea central in in anything. Do you think this
1: is related at all to that? Um, I mean, that's my suspicion. Yeah, I mean, the North Koreans have conducted a number of weapons tests this year, a shocking number, really. Uh, They were doing like two a week there for a while in January and into early February. And now they've... They've tested this, uh, you know, the, they've done one of the two things that is, are sort of the, the most provocative things they can do. The other one being uh, testing a nuclear warhead, which uh, there's some evidence they're preparing to do that as well. Uh, so I, I suspect that this is kind of a, a, a way to try and get U.S. attention. As you say, Biden hasn't made North Korea uh, much of a priority he comes out of you know he's vice president in the two-term uh, Obama administration, which definitely did not make North Korea a priority. It's entire pretty much time and time in office. Uh, So there's some precedent here for for Biden maybe kind of, you know, trying to put this issue to the side. Uh, Certainly, U.S. attention right now is uh, almost entirely devoted to what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, And so, yeah, I think this this may be a, a, you know, not cry for attention so much, but a a demonstration to the United States that that North Korea is still here and it's not uh, uh, they can't just be ignored. Yeah,
0: they they still matter. Um, So why don't we turn to the last topic of our news update this week, and that is uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So, Derek, where do things stand militarily, politically, etc.?
1: So on the ground, um, there's been a little bit of movement in a couple of places. Um, The city of Mariupol... Uh, An important port city in in southeastern Ukraine uh, was given an ultimatum. It's been besieged by the Russians for some weeks now Uh, or some days, I guess. Uh, It was given an ultimatum to surrender by the Russians uh, by, I think... 4 a.m. Tuesday morning, Moscow uh, local time. 5 a.m. in Moscow. Uh, they did not surrender. Ukrainian officials rejected that ultimatum, and it doesn't seem that anything really significant happened as a result of that. Uh, Mariupol is is likely to fall into Russian control uh, at some point, based on the the situation there. There I mean, were Russians control about half of the city as it is. Uh, they've surrounded the rest of it. They're they're striking it fairly frequently and heavily. Uh, You know, there was some drone footage uh, released earlier this week by the uh, admittedly uh, neo-Nazi or just old-school Nazi Azov battalion uh, that appeared to show, you know, a very heavy... Results of a very heavy bombardment of, of Mariupol. Uh, so the city's been, been pulverized. Um, Russia's in control of about half of it. They're, they've surrounded the rest. There's no relief force that the Ukrainians can send to kind of break this siege. So it seems likely that the city will fall to the Russians at some point. But that point could still be days or even weeks away there was some fear that you know because they'd given this ultimatum that meant there was going to be a you know an escalated bombardment or a full-scale attempt to take the city despite the fact that there are still tens of thousands of civilians believed to be trapped there uh, that did not, Take place, Um, so you know. Obviously, there have been civilian casualties. There have been claims of uh, Russian strikes on on places that were clearly marked as you know, sort of sheltering civilians. You know, those are. I'm not going to adjudicate those claims, but there have been civilian casualties. Certainly, as there are. You know, anytime you you have a war, um, but there hasn't been, uh, to my knowledge, an increase in the Russian. Effort in Mariupol because of this ultimatum or because of the rejection of it. Uh, there's some other movement uh, also in eastern Ukraine. There's there's been some continual slow movement of Russian forces uh, in the area around the Donbas. Uh, sort of looks like they're uh, attempting a pincer movement to surround. Uh, What would be the bulk of the Ukrainian military, really, that's still stationed uh, around the Donbass and that, that front line that's been there for eight years now. The, they they're moving slowly. I don't know how much movement they made this week, uh, but it's been sort of a continuous kind of slow progress uh, from the north and from the south to what you know, what, what appears to be an effort to uh, to surround this this military unit. The Ukrainians, I, to my knowledge, haven't made any move uh, to withdraw from that position, uh, so that sort of continues and is something to watch because I think if the Russians do manage to surround that army and take it out of the the war. Um, that, that would be a, maybe an endgame uh, for the Ukrainians or, or at least a, a sign that things are uh, transitioning to a different phase of conflict. Um, the last thing I would mention in terms of movement on the ground, uh, and we can talk about air power, but that's a separate issue. Um, there, are, there have been reports of Ukrainian forces counterattacking Russian positions around Kiev and sort of opening up, Uh, some space around Kyiv. There was a report and a video that the Ukrainians released, uh, I think on Tuesday, showing Ukrainian forces kind of patrolling uh, a town called Makarev, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, which is a bit west of Kyiv. And and the the video uh showed like a, you know, relatively calm, depopulated, obviously, but relatively calm town that the Ukrainians were patrolling, suggesting that they were firmly back in control of this place. That turns out, uh, according to uh, at least the Washington Post, to have been a bit misleading. Uh Lakharov still seems to be very much on the front line it's getting bombarded uh you know shelled by the russians uh, fairly heavily so it's it's not just kind of firmly back in the possession of uh, of the ukrainians so i don't know how much stock to put in these counterattack reports they, they seem to be um you know there may be something to them but uh, i think the the results are being exaggerated
0: so has there been any movement politically or are
1: there any developments that we should be aware of uh, so peace talks are continuing, you know, I think we talked last week about the, the, uh, the fact that they were continuing on, a, on an almost daily basis now, uh, virtually to my knowledge that's continued, but as to whether there's been any substantive progress, I, I don't think so. Um, you keep hearing, uh, varying claims, uh, you know, that change almost on a day-to-day basis that they're. Close to an agreement on this issue or that they're, uh, you know, they're making steady progress, even though they're they're difficult and slow. Uh, But there's been no indication of any major progress on any front. A few other things to mention. Um, There is evidence that the Russians are increasing their. Uh, use of air power, and I, I don't just mean missiles in this case, or kind of long-range air power, uh, but aircraft, planes, which is something that they had dialed back, it seems, uh, because of Ukrainian air defenses. This is, despite the fact that that the West is continuing to pour at least portable air defense units into Ukraine, nevertheless, it seems the Russians are, are escalating the frequency of their airstrikes. Um, the U.S. talked this week about sending uh, a few Soviet-era kind of short-range Air defense batteries that they had acquired as part of, uh, you know, CIA program to study Soviet military hardware, uh, trying to send those to Ukraine. There's been continued talk of trying to get S-300s into Ukraine from Slovakia or Poland. Uh, those are also kind of older soviet models but they're a little more long range or uh, at least medium range um but nothing so far on on those fronts those are the kind of systems that um the ukrainians could in theory try to use to shoot down russian missiles which are uh, still you know having the the biggest uh, impact i think on the uh, on the conflict have there been any
0: updates about how the russian economy has responded or adapted to sanctions
1: So the Russians uh, this week announced that they are going to start demanding that unfriendly countries, and Vladimir Putin is keeping a list, uh, unfriendly countries, that's right, uh, will have to pay for uh, their natural gas imports, and this applies mostly to Europe, uh, in rubles rather than in euros or dollars or any of the other currencies that these transactions may be denominated in. Uh, This is an effort to prop up the ruble, which has obviously taken quite a hit because of sanctions. It is unclear to me whether he's talking about changing the terms of existing contracts to require payment in rubles, uh, which would, you know, then force those countries to buy rubles you know which would bolster the ruble's value in order to then turn around and spend those rubles on gas uh, or if he's talking about any new contracts moving forward being denominated in rubles technically i'm not sure that you know in a in a sort of legal sense, if if one were to take this to court, if that was even possible, uh, that you're allowed to change the terms. Like, if you've got a gas deal with Germany that's denominated in euros, I don't know that you can turn around and, and change that to say, well, we want payment in rubles now. Uh, but Germany's so dependent on Russian gas that it probably doesn't matter. Uh, they will have to do this anyway if they want to keep the the imports coming. Uh, so that's an indication of, of something. You know, the Russians are trying to flex their, their muscles a little bit here to to uh, use their energy exports as a way to uh, prop up the broader economy, which has clearly taken a hit. Uh, the U.S. and Europe have been working to find alternatives to Russian energy imports, but so far, the only things I've seen are, uh, you know, Germany has cut a, a deal with uh, Qatar to supply it with liquefied natural gas. They've been negotiating with uh, the United Arab Emirates to supply things like hydrogen. Uh, those are years away from being feasible. Uh, alternatives to Russian gas so they're not short-term uh solutions they're not gonna you know support uh, any kind of European embargo which I know is the thing that, that people keep talking about uh they're they're not they're not viable uh replacements in the short term for for Russian energy so that that's uh, I think going to continue to be debated. There's also been some drama at the UN uh, that we can talk about. Uh, the United Let's States. Let's talk
0: about it. What else? Yeah, are
1: we doing? it's always good to <laughs> good to talk about UN drama. The United States keeps. Uh, alleging that the Russians are going to use chemical or biological weapons. They've even started alleging that uh, Russia might use a quote-unquote low-yield nuclear weapon, which is uh, the euphemism that we use now for tactical nuclear weapons because I guess uh, it makes it sound more – palatable to use them which is kind of terrifying uh, there's no evidence that the Russians are doing this but the United States keeps talking about it I don't know whether they've actually seen intelligence that suggests it's possible or if they're just trying to create some uh, some more drama and a you know kind of international uh, abhorrence directed Russia's way the Russians deny that they have any plans to use any sorts of any varieties of WMD uh, in Ukraine but something to continue watching. At the Security Council, where this issue has been most hotly debated, uh, Russia proposed a resolution this week. They've actually been circulating a draft for a number of of days now, but they finally put it to a vote uh, this week about humanitarian aid to Ukraine and sort of talks about protecting corridors for humanitarian aid and making sure that organizations are able to operate in Ukraine. But the text doesn't mention or didn't mention the war at all. Uh, just sort of mentioned the need for humanitarian aid, like this had just manifested out of thin air. Uh, that resolution was soundly defeated. Uh, Russia and China voted in favor of it. Uh, every other member of the Security Council abstained, so it, it did not pass. Uh, it was then countered by a resolution put forward by Ukraine, uh, along with the United States and several European nations, Uh, to the UN General Assembly kind of talking about the same things, demanding access for humanitarian organizations, demanding protection for civilians. uh, But it was openly critical of Russia and openly critical of the war for having created these situations Uh, that, passed, um, you know, decidedly, you know, 140 votes uh, in favor, only five votes against and 38 abstentions. Uh, it has no legal or, or you know, actual practical uh, repercussions. It's just a, you know, sort of embarrassment uh, to Russia showing that they're isolated, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like wrong side of history type rhetoric, which is meaningless, but uh, always sounds nice when people say it. Or impressive. Uh the last thing I guess, uh, unless you have other questions, the last thing we should probably talk about are casualty claims because there was a wild sort of Yeah, we'll uh, talk about casualty claims and then incident, I have one final sort of disorder. meta question. So uh a pro-Russian uh, or pro well, it's it's a Russian tablets that's, that's friendly with the government that has presumably, you know, some some connections with the Russian government published uh, earlier this week, a, a casualty count, uh, that was just astonishing. It was like 9,800 dead Russian soldiers, uh, 14,000 wounded Russian soldiers claiming that this info, they'd gotten this information from the Russian defense ministry. Uh, they put this forward uh, as, uh, ironically enough, a counter uh, to Ukrainian claims of much higher Russian casualties. Uh, but in, in the text of this article, they were like, you know, the Ukrainians are being crazy. We've only lost this many. But it's still a staggering number for a you know a month-long war. Uh, the article was quickly taken down. They've now claimed, the newspaper has now claimed that they were hacked. Um, I don't know how, how reasonable an excuse that is, uh, but clearly, you know, either the information was not good or uh, they were not, Supposed to publish it or something. Um, I don't put a lot of stock into it. I think it was just, a, you know, some kind of a uh, something fishy went on there, and I I wouldn't put much stock into it. Um, but NATO is also now kind of getting into the game of trying to estimate Russian military casualties. Uh, I think estimating is probably being generous. They're guessing. Uh, they're claiming, you know, between 7,000 and 15,000 killed, which uh, is basically the U.S. estimate. I think we might have. Talked about that last week uh, of around seven thousand, and and then the maximum uh, Ukrainian estimate, which is uh, where they get that fifteen thousand uh, figure. These would also be staggering. Even the lowest uh, estimate there, you know, around seven thousand would be a staggering figure. Uh, again, I don't I don't know how much stock to put in these things, and and some of it is probably. Propagandistic, You know, look how many soldiers the Russians are using. Look how badly they're doing, uh, which is, you know, exaggerated. Um, I know people get upset no matter which way you come down on this. Um, but, you know, the, these are the figures that are being tossed around and, and you know, people will encounter those and uh, something to keep in mind, I guess.
0: So let's end on this meta question um, and, and tell me if you think I'm misguided here. It, it seems like in terms of public interest that it's beginning to wane. Um, that Americans are becoming slightly less interested in the invasion of Ukraine. Um, I was wondering what you thought about that. And then uh, secondly, I'm kind of in a space where I'm thinking about larger geostrategy, and it does seem like this isn't really going to um, affect the broader shift which the U.S. foreign policy and national security establishment has been making over the last two to eight years, which is really focusing on China as the prime geostrategic competitor. Um, So what do you think of those takes, um, and and do
1: you think I'm wrong, or do you think this is what you're seeing as well? I do get the sense that there's less interest in the day-to-day kind of changes that are happening in Ukraine, whatever their developments that may be happening uh, in Ukraine. There's, there's, there's certainly a focus on what's happening in Kyiv. There's a focus on what's happening in Mariupol because that's very dramatic and uh, immediate. Uh, But I, 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 I have kind of seen uh, uh, less attention on the sort of nitty gritty details like you know, what What new oligarchs were sanctioned today or, uh, you know, what little, uh, you know, where did a, you know, missile strike today or, or what, you know, uh, minor movements. And, and uh, you know, it's hard to know whether that's uh, because attention is, is waning uh, or because the conflict has gotten more static. And again, I know, you know, people get, uh, mad no matter how you you portray this but it, it has gotten more static there is um whether whether by design or um you know because they've gotten bogged down the Russians are moving more slowly than they did at the beginning of this uh this war and again I you know I don't know if they anticipated that or if they thought this was going to be a uh, a quicker operation or not um uh, but as a result I think uh partly of that um uh, there's, Less interest in what's going on because it's it's sort of gotten to it to a uh, a place where you're digging trenches and and it's kind of sitting there and uh, not moving a whole lot. Um, so I, I agree with you there. I think the uh, attention um, mm-hmm. is starting to to flag a little bit uh, in terms of China. I think the signs are there that this is this is not gonna change very much in, in particularly in the sense that uh, the biden administration has been trying to make this story more about China for a couple of for at least a week now and probably longer than that uh, they've put a lot of emphasis on how is China responding here is China helping uh, the Russian military are they sending weapons are they doing you know uh what are they doing what's going on um and you know I think that 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 to me says that you know our attention is still really at the end of the day focused on China and what we're trying to do here is uh to discredit China basically to make China uh to 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 diminish China's stature or its image uh in the world as a result of whatever kind of connections we can draw uh between What's happening in Ukraine and the Chinese government's response to that? So I, I do, uh, I agree with that as well. I think the, the focus, uh, for the United States remains mostly on China. Um, in, in a sense, I think this allows uh, this, this could the, the Ukraine war and the level of, uh, kind of NATO kind of activity that it's engendered the 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 uh what it's injected into the transatlantic relationship um you know the the extent to which uh European countries are now talking about spending more on defense uh, maybe frees up the United States in a way to to pivot make the pivot to Asia even more uh pronounced um and and kind of leave to some degree I know we don't want to do this in a in a you know in a big way because the united states doesn't want to give up uh control anywhere at any time um but there there is some sense maybe that you can um leave european affairs to the europeans with you know with an american oversight uh rather than having to yeah, have veto this, power yeah yeah, veto power basically rather than needing to have a, a, a as large a presence there as as the united states has had historically so I don't know. That's that's something to watch, uh, you know, moving forward. Well, Derek, as always, thank you so much, and everyone,
0: please enjoy our interview with E Tammy Kin, and we'll see you next week. Bye.
1: Bye. Uh, hello, American Prestige listeners. It's Derek. I'm here as always with Danny Besner, uh, and we're joined. Uh, as far as you know for the first time but actually for the second time uh, by E. Tammy Kim I'll explain that in a minute Tammy is a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times Uh, she is the co-host of the Time to Say Goodbye podcast Uh, she has been generous enough to uh, come join us a second time even though we still have yet to release her first interview Uh, Tammy thank you very (laughs) much for coming back to the podcast
2: nice to see you guys thank you very much
1: uh, so uh, to explain what I just said, we recorded an interview with Tammy several weeks ago uh, that we're gonna be releasing to subscribers uh, this week. Uh, but some of that, the material in there predates, Uh, the South Korean presidential election. Uh, Mm -hmm. We recorded the interview and then Ukraine happened and we just couldn't figure out uh, a good window to release that episode or that interview. Uh, So uh, that's why you will hear Tammy uh, offer some very interesting and very, I think, informative background about the race but we didn't know at the time who had won. (laughs) So luckily she's come (laughs) back, and now we can talk about uh, the election and the aftermath of Yoon Suk-yeol's stirring victory, I suppose. Uh, Mm -hmm. Tammy, why don't you start us (laughs) off uh, by talking a little bit about who Yoon Suk-yeol is uh, and what he may be expected to do once he assumes the office of president in, uh, I think, May, right? That's the, the inauguration.
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, thanks for that. So Yoon Suk-yeol was actually um, a prosecutor under Moon, who is the outgoing president. And even though Yoon is now with the opposition party of Um, you know, that opposes President Moon, um, he really owes his career and his success and his entry into politics to Moon in some regard. Um, This is his first entry into electoral politics, period. So he's never run for any kind of office or been involved in politics at all and has run for president and won. Um, So that's rather astonishing. It's also really surprising that the South Koreans were willing to elect a career prosecutor, given the sort of recent authoritarian history of the country. um, Prosecutors are not necessarily viewed very fondly in a country where that office has been abused so much against citizens. but basically, Yoon, at some point in the Moon administration, was sort of known as a kind of hard-charging guy for the liberals. He prosecuted two former presidents, including the president who had been impeached to allow Moon to be elected. He went after the head of Samsung. Um, and so I think a lot of liberals sort of viewed him favorably. Like, here's a guy who seems like a decent lawyer prosecutor. He's come into the Moon administration to serve the people's desires. And then at some point, he sort of turned his scrutiny on people within the Moon administration itself. And that was kind of the beginning of the cleavage between him and the liberal party anyway there haven't been very many strong candidates to come forward in the presidential race and so Yoon was able to benefit from that he sort of held hands with um this the head of the the party the conservative party which is called the people power party (laughs) funny enough and um Was able to benefit from some of the currents that are underway in the sort of reorganization of Korean politics, chiefly kind of the emergence of a men's rights kind of incel type voting bloc in the 20s and 30s males who are also extremely concerned about economic insecurity. Anyway, so all of this has supported Yoon. He barely won. He won by um, less than a percent over Lee jem Lee Jemyung, who who was the uh, Liberal Party's candidate. And so here we are. Um, so,
0: Tammy, I've got... Uh, <laughs> so much in to, to great, say, in, but yeah. In a great condition. So... Uh, I, I've got just a couple of quick questions for, for myself who doesn't know much about Korean domestic politics. When you say that there weren't strong presidential candidates, so what 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 do you mean and what was the reason behind that? Because I'm thinking in the United States, you know, there's no real bench for the left-wing Dems. The Republicans also don't really have a bench, which is why Trump might run again. So what are the conditions that led to we that? We just and, had and an what you election with that? the
1: two greatest Americans, Donald Trump yeah, and Joe Biden. Derek. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> well, I'm I'm this daring. is slanderous. Derek, it was a hard
0: choice for Derek. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he voted for Nader. Um, but yeah, so I, if you could just explain that for someone like me, who's totally ignorant about Korean domestic politics and what you mean by that.
2: Yeah, I mean, honestly, the deep the bench issue is sort of it's, it's really a kind of a, a troubling phenomenon right now that in Korean politics, but it's sort of an older issue in the sense that um, so at the beginning of the South Korean democracy, which isn't that old. Right. We're talking about like the late 80s, basically, when people started voting, people into office. You first had this kind of generation of the people who were involved in the democracy movement. And so maybe we could say that was a little bit of a deep bench era in the sense that they were like imprisoned activists. There were people who were national leaders yeah, for um, decades,
0: then, I imagine. Yeah, there was like yeah, decades so of building those, up. Those yeah. sort
2: of hung in there. Yeah, for a while. Right. And so they were people of kind of national renown. And then um, and in a way, like Moon Jae-in. Uh, the outgoing president is a little bit of like an inheritor to that. I mean, he was involved in the student movement, and, but he's maybe like kind of the younger end of, you know, those folks um, like he was the protege of President Roe, um, who was a very kind of popular left wing president after the initial democracy leaders had come in and. Um, and now we're at a point where there's been like a lot of flip-flopping among political leaders. There's been a lot of controversies, um, like in the U.S., controversies over sexual harassment and assault that have knocked out some candidates. Um, famously, um, a few years ago, the mayor of Seoul, who would have been a kind of natural contender to rise up into the Liberal Party candidacy for president, killed himself after being accused of sexual harassment. Right. Um, so there, there are some instances like that. um, um Su, who was a kind of third party-ish candidate, um, who's somewhere between the libs and the conservatives had put himself in with Yoon seok right before this, the, um, the election. And so he was also someone who was kind of in the mix. So this is all to say that, um, there hasn't maybe been enough sort of party grooming and even the people who've been groomed have been kind of knocked out for various reasons. And so what we were left with in this election was Lee Jae-myung, who, you know, by some accounts is a fairly reasonable candidate, but had a lot of kind of scandals around him, personal and professional. But he had been a mayor of a large city. He had been a governor of a very significant province. Um, So, you know, not the worst candidate, but also not Extremely popular. And again, the kind of personal scandals had him under a bit of a shroud. Um, And the People Power Party, because of the impeachment of Pak and the kind of inability for that party to kind of reconstitute itself in a sort of respectable conservative way, (laughs) has gone out a little bit into kind of a far right direction. And then you end up with someone like Hune filling that hole.
0: Uh, Does it function like the United States in terms of like these figures are essentially try to form cults of personality around themselves? Um, or is it sort of a different political culture?
2: I mean, I think in this presidential election, there definitely were not cults of personality. I mean, again, I think it's kind of hard to generalize because the democracy is fairly young. We can say maybe that Moon Jae-in had a, has had a little bit of a cult of personality around him because he was seen as the people's candidate coming out of the movement that impeached Park geun Park also herself, of course, had a kind of cult of personality because she was the daughter of the military dictator Park chung hee who you either hate or love in Korean politics, and that kind of determines your view of, was he necessary for Korea's development, et cetera. So there are these sort of cults of personality, but there's also just, similar to the U.S., it's essentially a two-party system that's kind of stuck in a two-party groove. And you get who you get, and you don't really feel like you have many choices, even though there are third-party candidates.
1: So, Tamia. One of the things I want to ask you about is is how Yoon is likely to handle North Korea, but we'll get into that in a moment. I think, particularly given the fact that, as we mentioned earlier, uh, you know North Korea just conducted an intercontinental ballistic missile mm-hmm. test today. This is obviously uh, at the forefront of things, but uh, we can get to get to that in a, in a moment. Uh, first, I'd like to get your take on uh, what kind of legacy Moon will leave, if any. Um, particularly given that he he wrapped up a lot of his presidency in the idea of building a relationship with Kim Jong Un and and kind of restoring uh, or or building an inter Korean relationship that that never really uh, seemed to come to fruition.
2: Yeah. So I think Moon is of a, a kind of generation or a political persuasion that sees the North Korea issue as very intimately tied to domestic politics. The idea being that to in order to escape some of the sort of pathologies of the South Korean society, the militarism, the extreme polarization... Um, you need to at least have peaceful coexistence with North Korea. I think most people don't really think about reunification with North Korea in some sort of like East-West German way, the sort of like idyllic homecoming of the Korean race. Like, I think we're kind of beyond that at this point. But Moon talked in very practical terms in ways I think that appealed to people. What if we had, um, you know, much more connection what if we as South Koreans had much more connection to the North what if there was a railway that connected the two countries what if there was an increase in trade etc um you know I think Moon had a very difficult time with this because he had a certain idea of you know building that relationship with North Korea then he was dealing with Trump and Trump's very volatile relationship with Kim Jong-un in some moments that actually helped Moon have access to North Korea because the North Koreans care so much about what the U.S. thinks. In some moments, it was extremely scary. And I think like very uh, rabid supporters of Moon would go so far as to say that Moon maybe prevented a hot conflict from arising um, because of the way that he was able to mediate. But, you know, all in all, kind of looking back over those summits and all of the time that we were very hopeful in 2018, I think most people feel like it was a lot for nothing that Moon eventually did sort of lose sight of domestic affairs. Most people care about housing costs and debt and coronavirus and their daily lives and they're not really thinking about North Korea and maybe Moon put too much stock into that. So I think that's, that's really, really difficult. I mean, I think Moon did make some very progressive Moon moves in terms of domestic policy around the regulation of housing costs. He tried anyway. Um, the inc- an increase in the minimum wage Um, you know, he tried to do some progressive things like he put a bunch of women in his cabinet. This is fairly new. So there there are sort of things that you can look back on and say, yeah, that is kind of consonant with the progressive tradition. Um, However, what are the sort of concrete things in people's lives he did to make people's lives better? Um, I don't know that people feel very satisfied with that. Um, And I think the blame is maybe misplaced in a lot of cases.
0: Why do you think that blame... um exists, why do you think it's become a sort of the centering uh, focus? If, yeah. if you think it's misplaced, maybe you could explain why is it misplaced? And then why has it been sure. misplaced in this particular way?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, on the issue of rising housing costs, I'm not sure that what kind of policy a president for, could come out of a president's office that would rein all of that in immediately within this five-year term that he had, yeah. you know? I mean, <laughs> we're, talking about, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, we're talking about, yeah, essentially, yeah, because we're talking about um, you know, and I think we talked about this a little bit before, but this sort of extremely tight um, housing market in a very tight space. South Korea is a very small country. You have massive real estate speculation. You have ex- an extremely wealthy class that is engaged in that real estate speculation. So prices are always going up and the middle class and the lower class feels cut out of that. But what exactly can you do as president without taking the economy without, you know, it, you're also in an economy that has been strangled by these. Kind of status conglomerate tyler groups for so long, so you also are worried about you know offending them or shrinking them in a way that'll sink the economy. So I think this is the the sort of trap for progressives in South Korean politics that has always been the case, and Moon was stuck in kind of the same place. Um, I'm sure there could have been more that was done, sure, to rein in Tibor, to try to lift up small and medium-sized enterprises, et cetera, et cetera. However, um, I think because it's such a small country and because all eyes are always on the president, they sort of get stuck for things that, in my mind, seem somewhat intractable, somewhat beyond the the, uh, the office.
0: Yeah, the agent, in some sense, is blamed for the structure. Which is something so. you see a lot in in in, in presidential po- presidential systems, especially. I think it's a it's a weakness of yeah, presidential systems as it like it a way. general thing. Yeah.
1: So Tammy, I'm curious. Um, you know, talking about what Moon was able to achieve or not able to achieve in terms of domestic politics, and and as you said, there's been this sort of outreach by the People's Party to to a to a further right. Demographic or the rise of a kind of mer- or sort of a marriage of men's rights and uh, concern over economic insecurity, uh, which seems very similar to, uh, you know, the the kind of processes that have gone on in Europe, in the United States, uh, mm-hmm. in terms of the rise of the uh, uh, of type of far right populism, in a sense. But I'm curious. A I far mean, right you chauvinism- obviously uh, yeah, yeah far right like chauvinism. A masculine yeah. chauvinism yeah. um you've you've observed that happening in in the United States at the you know at the same time mm. that it's happening in Korea and South Korea. I'm curious, you know do you see a lot of commonalities between uh, these processes or more differences in the the specific circumstances? How do you sort of uh, you know look at them in concert with one another?
2: Yeah, I think the one distinction I might draw is that it seems like the men's rights backlash to the feminist movement in South Korea that we're seeing right now gained a political foothold in a much more kind of dramatic and fast way than in the United States. I think in the United States, we can say that there are many different strands that, I mean, it's a larger country, there's, you know, it's hard to compare these, but um, that yes, of course, there's this sort of like angry man class or what some sociologists have identified as like, I guess, the non-college graduate white you know, males, right, or something like that. Um, and so maybe if you, you know, yes, in in some ways those are kind of analogous groupings, but I think in South Korea you had um, a conservative party that didn't, was kind of trying to reorient its constituency and then you had these men feeling extremely unmoored and getting, sort of going from a kind of cyberspace organizing to real life organizing and then the People Power Party really capitalizing on their discontent and bringing them in very quickly, and in the People Party Power Party case, they um, basically anointed this young man named Lee Jun-suk Lee to become the leader of that party, like, very quickly. And he's essentially that group, that kind of angry incel group. And so, um, yeah, I mean, to, I think in the U.S., it's it, I would say that the, the sort of orientation of the Republicans is maybe much more complicated. But in South Korea, really, they were able to bring in this 20, 30-something group of men, like, Almost immediately in a way that is is just so shocking because usually the, you know, in South Korea, as in many other places, the young people tend to vote more liberal.
0: So, again, I feel like this is another super ignorant question, but like, how would you frame sort of the state of like, this is a sort of tough to frame, like, what is normative masculinity in in South Korea? And and how does this relate to ideas of normative masculinity?
2: (laughs) Um, I know.
0: So let's, so it starts in 1940. (laughs) It's a huge question, but like, I have a sense of like what normative masculinity is in the United States, right? mm -hmm. Regardless of all the social progress, there's still this idea of like breadwinning and sort of like patriarchy and things like that. And I was wondering if you could maybe just let listeners who might not know, like how, what does it look like at least a little bit in the ROK?
2: Yeah. So, Yes, the breadwinning, certainly. So if you are a man in South Korea, your trajectory is, um, you know, you go through school, a very competitive environment. Um, around the time of the end of high school or college, you have to go to military service for almost two years. Every single male has to go. This is its own sort of rot in society in the sense that um, South Korea is an extremely militarized society. Um,
0: the You're, you're camp- welcome. <laughs>
2: I know. uh, The conscription um, really locks that in and builds resentment in a tight market economy against women because men will say things like, well, I had to sacrifice those two years of my life and what did you do? And now you've got my job in an office, right? Of course, women are kicked out of that job almost immediately after they get married or have a kid. So, it's not fair either. But that's the way that men are thinking. So, the normative masculinity is you're very tough, you've gone to military, you know how to shoot a gun, you know how to bring in money for your family. Um, Until recently, most young people would live with their parents until they were able to buy a house and get married and go out. And so if you are now in an economy where you can no longer do that, where you cannot afford to buy your own place and to get married and go out, then you might be very frustrated because now you're stuck inside with your parents or you're too poor to go rent a place on your own. So, um, yeah, I think like in the the patriarchal traditions in more conservative or traditional families we could say are even more extreme like you are the inheritor of like if we're talking about like Confucian or like Buddhist traditions you are the inheritor of various things you need to keep up in your household like ancestral rituals and bringing your family together on the holidays and stuff so there are a lot of kind of financial and emotional burdens that if you are a traditional male, male you are intuiting.
0: Tammy, I was wondering, how does this or does this not relate to sort of the export of Korean pop music? Um, are, are, are sort of the, the, the big pop stars, are they expressing a form of normative masculinity? Because it reads differently in different cultures. And I was just wondering if you could, it just, it, it, it leads yeah, me to funny. that. Because that is such a big col- cultural export, you know, um, and particularly a particular um, a vision of masculinity and things like that. But I was wondering if you could talk about that for a second, and then we'll let Derek get back to the uh, geopolitical questions.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I don't. So I'm. am definitely not an expert in K-pop. Um, as anyone who is even just like the most barest observer of this would would see, um, the K-pop stars who are male are quite andro- androgynous or or feminine in some ways. Or, um, but I. In a way that um maybe like in the eighties or nineties when we had more like androgynous pop stars in the US, they were still marked as like masculine and desirable and subjects of like erotic desire from women. And so I think And even think of old
0: school, you know, he's like you're gonna hook up like boy band people, right? So there was still the sense that they were like virile men.
2: Definitely. Yeah, like the monkeys or whatever, right? So um these kind of made groups. Um I mean, interestingly, just like on the conscription thing, so a lot of times South Korean pop stars and athletes are essentially uh, given an exemption from uh, military service. And so that's oh, kind of like a funny thing where there is like, oh, so you're really special or you're an economic driver or you're some sort of like cultural symbol and therefore you don't have to, you know, engage in this. Or they'll get around it in various kind of weaselly ways. And so, um, yeah, that's quite funny. But, uh, yeah, I would say… I would say that I, I, I don't like none of those pop stars are political in any way or allowed to speak about politics or engaged in anything. And so um, it almost seems like just this like alien universe that really doesn't connect at all with some of the currents that we're talking about.
1: Tammy, I'm curious um, if there, if any part of this um, movement or the, the rise of this kind of right wing backlash is rooted in a frustration with moon's presidency and and i would make the parallel to barack obama in the sense of uh you know feeling like we voted for hope and change and we got a bank bailout and pivot to deficit reduction and uh you know nothing fundamentally to borrow joe biden's phrase uh, changed for people even though there was this Hope that this guy was going to, you know, it's going to fix the problems basically that had been built up over, uh, you know, many years of, of, I would say, neoliberal politics and, and economics. Um, is there any sense that, you know, like we tried Moon, we tried the more liberal, the more, you know, further left option and that didn't do anything. And so now we're kind of, uh, you know, going to the other end of things, you know, sort of look for a, a, a solution.
2: I think definitely. And at the beginning of Moon's term, I had written about him and compared him to Obama because I sort of saw that already, this kind of hopey changey thing that was already setting up some forms of disappointment. At that time, it was really only on the far left and in the labor world where they were already able to see some of Moon's le- neoliberal tendencies or his conciliatory you know, tendencies in the way that Obama also um, displayed those. Um, then I think it spread into the group that you're talking about, just like not necessarily leftists, but people who had great expectations for him to improve the quality of their lives coming out of the Candlelight movement. And, um, you know, Moon took office after Park and this guy named Yi Myung-bak, who was like a corporate executive. And both of those candidates, uh, or sorry, both of those presidents really actually instituted authoritarian policies during their democratic, um, tenure. Um, for example, they had psyop programs. They made, um, extensive use of sort of surveillance technologies and, um, apparatuses. Um, they retaliated against people in culture and in the media, um, for speaking against them. So it was a very, very difficult time those years. And, um, But now we're kind of seeing a little bit of a nostalgia for those years. So I think it is exactly kind of what you said of, well, Moon, you said you were going to look out for the least of us. You said also that we were going to increase the Korean middle class. Um, Again, I would just say like the real estate stuff, I just don't know what you do with it. It just seems so difficult to tackle. But that question of jobs and housing of youth discontent. Really, Moon did not have an answer. He also was very bad at speaking to the public. You know, he was supposed to be the candidate who came out of the Blue House to address everybody all the time, to be in the streets with the people. And he ended up sort of cloistering himself in a way that was extremely unproductive. So I think it was both like on a policy level and a sort of emotive level that he brought a lot of disappointment to his supporters.
1: Um. Well. we'll uh, actually, I have a question about the blue house. I think you probably know oh, know yeah. where it's going there, but um, that'll uh, uh, I'll ask that in a minute. Um, what first, a tease, Derek. You're uh, such a good uh, podcaster. Yeah, I, know. I just learn from you every day. I'm getting good at this. <laughs> um. So, moving forward, then, and I know I'm asking you to predict, and I'm asking you to predict in particular how somebody who doesn't really have an electoral Record or a governing record is going to uh, govern. Um, But Yoon comes into office riding uh, this movement uh, that we've been talking about here, this sort of far right or further right. chauvinistic movement. Uh He's going to be beholden to that in some regard, one would think. Um, But he's also, you know, m- you know, got to try to address the same problems that Moon failed to address. If he mm-hmm. wants to, you know, sort of uh, govern successfully, how do you, um, anticipate he's going to come at these problems, uh, what is the broader political environment going to look like in terms of, you know, working with uh, legislator, legislature and, and uh, you know, how much freedom is he going to have uh, to sort of operate and, and, you know, what will he do with it?
2: So the one kind of sort of hallmark promise he had made on the campaign trail was to abolish the Ministry of Gender and families, which is uh, a ministry not only responsible for addressing the gender um, equity gaps, but also addressing the plight of minority populations in South Korea, and, you know, sort of, in a way, kind of like a catch-all for a lot of these sort of minority concerns and women's concerns. Um, it seems like he's proceeding with that, um, but it will require, I think, if I'm, if I'm correct, the approval of the legislature. And right now, the National Assembly in South Korea is dominated by the Liberal Party has a very strong majority. And so um, it is unclear, for everything that um, requires legislative approval, it's unclear how much Yun will get done, but there are certain things he could probably do through the executive uh, without that. And so we'll have to see how that shakes out. The by-elections for some of the local uh, races is this June, Um, but then in, I think in 2024, there'll be national assembly elections again, so. Until then, you know, how much power is he going to be able to wield? We shall see. Um, Right now, if we look at his transition team, he's pulled in a ton of people from the Lee administration, the Yi Myung-bak administration I just mentioned, that did the psyops, and that was very pro-corporate. And so that's not, (laughs) from a progressive standpoint, that's quite alarming. Um, He, of course, Yi Jun suk the sort of incel leader of the party, is very involved in his campaign still. Um, You know, he said... One thing you could say about this Korean election is it, it wasn't the kind of situation where there was any kind of Trumpian figure who was like, you know, ha I won, go to hell. Um, everyone conceded and and sort of said, OK, this was a democratic process. This guy won and we'll do our best. However, Moon and, and um, President-elect Yoon have not yet met. And so that's really alarming. Basically, they've, there's been fighting between the Blue House and um, the transition team. And so... Uh, there are right now concerns about whether this transition will take place smoothly. So in that sense, OK, then it kind of reminds us of like, oh, no, this is like the Trump entry. Um What else? I think in terms of the real estate question, I think we can expect that Yoon will do things that favor the rich and corporations because those are the people who got him elected. Um, You know, a lot has been made, again, of the kind of 2030 male population supporting him. But then you look at the most populous areas of South Korea, which are in Seoul, and it's almost divided um, in a completely um, concordant way with if you're richer, you voted for Yoon. So the richer the neighborhood, basically, the more likely that neighborhood went for Yoon. And so there's, it seems that those rich people are basically hoping that Yoon will deregulate housing and real estate speculation, which is already not regulated enough to my mind, and that their housing will go up, that he will greenlight the redevelopment of areas, allowing for more real estate development to occur. Um, I, he will not be touching, you know, any kind of There won't be any kind of like tip or regulation or anything like that. Also, Um, of course, he's made the kind of gestures that every president makes to small businesses, yada, yada. Um, But we don't see those actually. I, I don't think that those will actually take shape policy wise.
0: Just a quick question about that. Is, is there like this ideology of the small business owner in South Korea, like there is in the United States, which here emerges from like this 200 year old tradition about the Jeffersonian yeomanry? Did that, <laughs> is that something that like always existed or is that sort of a function of the American influence on South Korea? It's just interesting that he would make that a, a platform of his campaign or oh, at yeah. least rhetorically.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think there's always people, the pres- the candidates will always like visit, you know, the traditional markets and small business owners and say, I stand with the people. So yeah, that's probably just universal. But in South Korea, the the concentration of small and medium um, sized businesses is huge. Um, this also is why the household debt rate is one of the highest in the world because people are constantly trying to form their own businesses. So like if you go to South Korea. So on the one hand, you have this thing where, okay, South Korea, the South Korean economy is so dominated by the Tibor groups and without them, the economy would collapse, right? Like Samsung is like whatever, 20% 20 of the economy or whatever. We always hear that. On the other hand, you kind of walk through the streets of any city and like all of the stores are small businesses. Like there's so many tiny shops and mom and pop businesses, et cetera. So that's, that is, that is real. And that is really a part of the texture of, of life there, um, and you know, I think obviously, you know, some of the chains and stuff are owned by conglomerates, but um, the small business thing, I think, is is real and is more meaningful probably than even in the United States. That everyone has a connection to a small business owner. Everyone in their family is operating some sort of small restaurant or shop.
1: One of the areas, and here's my my Blue House question. One of the areas in which the Moon administration and the transition are are squabbling. Uh, is over a plan that Yoon has announced to move out of the Blue House to put the presidential residence uh, in a uh, neighborhood in Seoul to move the presidential office to the current defense ministry, which would require then relocating the defense ministry somewhere else. Um, I find this interesting that this is like the people's power populist party that wants to throw... $40 Forty million dollars like forty one million dollars, I think, on the bonfire, basically to fund this uh this just you know uh move for appearance's sake basically uh yeah. and and moon's government hasn't so far at least seemed willing to allocate the money to do this ahead of the the inauguration, so they're they're right. sort of fighting about that uh, th- that said, um this is not he's not the first. Uh, president or president-elect, let's say, to to contemplate moving out of the Blue House. And in fact, I think Moon even thought about it at one point and then reconsidered. Uh, and so I I wonder if you can talk a little bit about why this is an issue that comes up and, and what the motivation is uh, for getting out of the Blue House. Is it supposed to be a demonstration of kind of man of the people, uh populism is it is are, are there functional reasons why uh the blue house is not uh, you know an ideal place to to operate out of? Uh, I know there's some there was some claim that Yun is under the influence of Feng Shui <laughs> nefarious Feng Shui masters who are telling him that the blue house is uh you know not fortuitous and he gets, needs to get out of there what what's what are the strains that that go into this? uh idea and and do you think it's going to happen
2: yeah (laughs) so the (laughs) the built environment of the of seoul and where the blue house is is it's it is tricky so the blue house the presidential compound is in fact like a compound that feels kind of distant from seoul like it is in seoul but it's in a sort of uh kind of like more natural like mountainy area it's not really close to the subways et cetera. and so when moon was talking about oh let's have like, I want, I'm going to be the president of the people. I'm going to be out in the town square. Let's break down this kind of like blue house people divide. That was a a very populist gesture. He wasn't talking about necessarily moving everything physically into a different city or anything. What he was talking about was um, making some adjustments so that so right now there's like the presidential Blue House and then there's kind of like with the White House and the executive office building, like there are these different structures in the compound and it would be better if the president were like closer to staff, basically. And so there was some there have been there's been planning and thinking about that for many, many years. But that could be done by some architectural fixes, essentially, like within the existing compound, What. Yoon is talking about is quite on a different level, and he is presenting it as a little bit of a populist thing, like, "Oh, I want to be closer to the people, so this is, you know, better for security and stuff like that." But um, the thing you mentioned about the the feng shui uh, kind of shaman advice, like that, appears to be credible, actually. So one of the issues in the campaign was that that is, that um, is
1: not where I thought you were going to go, but okay, all right. Yeah, I know.
2: I mean, it sounds insane, but basically, so Yoon's wife it has been under the influence of kind of like these shamanistic advisor types for some time. And Yoon's wife is a very controversial figure. She was an issue in the campaign. Anyway, um, it now appears that Yoon is taking a lot of these people's advice. And so this like analysis of feng shui around the presidential palace, and if you stay there, you're going to, something bad's going to happen to you, actually does seem to be figuring into this. Um, This is also very traumatic for a lot of people who, participated in the impeachment protests against Park Geun-hye because Park famously was under the influence of sort of shamanistic figure. <laughs> and so we're thinking like, okay, so the moon years were the only time that there wasn't a shaman in the Blue House. Like this is kind of troubling right now as like a contemporary tradition in South Korea. Anyway, so it seems like Yoon is both wanting to say, hey, we're going to be closer to the action. We're going to be around the people. This is, you know, and at the same time, <laughs> this is potentially a move that is actually animated by, like, shamanistic thinking. So, so it's very, very confusing and uh, depressing. To me, what, what's one of the most interesting things is that, let's imagine that Yi Jae-myung won, that a liberal won, and they said, we're going to kick out the defense ministry right. to relocate. Right. That would, he would, like, be arrested, there would be, like, protests on the street by the right wing saying that he was in the pocket of Kim Jong-un and he's trying to destroy the country. Because, Mess, you know, messing with the defense ministry if you are a liberal basically means you're a communist. You're trying to bring down everything you're against, you know, and you're an agent of the Reds. Like that would have been immediately the response. And, and, and yet the People Power Party now is doing all sorts of sort of ideological gymnastics to justify this move. But if we took seriously what's actually happening, you would never again be able to say that the conservatives are the party of defense, of defense mindedness of like aggression towards or, you know, whatever defense and aggression against North Korea. Um, But here we are.
0: So Tammy, one question. um can we talk about sort of the the ideology of of the shamans uh who who are they? Where do they come from? and like what is the oh, politics God. associated with it if they' because if, uh, I imagine <laughs> there I is. Mean,
2: we're saying so we're saying like shaman in a very like generic way, like not specifically like the Korean animistic tradition of like women shamans in like folk tradition and agricultural ritual,
1: but, but I mean the more the park case like, was spiritual sort of and like a cult sort of a thing and not, yeah
2: exactly so we're, like the feng shui kind of like with with, with English English a little using. bit different
0: yeah so so, yeah, so what would be the best way to describe it um, or, or to, to make it more, more so, accurate because it, yeah like i'm particularly wor- could, um, curious about the ideology of these people who do, where mm-hmm. do they come from and what 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 is their politics
2: i'm not sure there's an ideology or a politics i think there's a just to kind of control function. I mean, it, maybe a better thing is like Nancy Reagan and her astrologer, you know, something like that. It. Like it's sort of right. like a kind trusted
1: of, advisor. That was like exactly, great. So. kind of, exactly. yeah. You know, yeah, that was great.
2: <laughs> that was great. That, yeah, that so. was, that,
1: nothing bad happened. <laughs> hey, it ended the cold war. So <laughs> yeah. there
2: you go. All the good things happened in that period. Um,
1: so, so we can't
0: like point yeah. to, to, to a particular group and say that they have this particular ideological position. It's more personal advisement. That's how
2: I I see it, certainly, Ender Park and Yoon. And, you know, and they kind of had different like religious affiliations, like one of the guys that Yoon's wife has been in touch with essentially calls himself like a Buddhist monk, but he's not really a Buddhist monk, you know, so it's just this way of people slipping in and getting power, exercising power over the electeds.
1: Continuing on this line, not the the cult line, but on the uh, question of administrative locations, um, mm-hmm. uh, another thing that Yoon has talked about is moving forward with plans to move the administrative capital of South Korea out of Seoul, which is something yeah. that has been... Talked about for a while, they you know uh, they even founded a new city. Uh, mm-hmm. I think in 2007 to city. to Sejong uh, to to achieve this, and yet it's gotten kind of uh, hung up. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the rationale behind that? I think some of it is defense or getting away mm-hmm. from the demilitarized zone. Uh, some of it is alleviating overcrowding in Seoul. But uh, what what's what are sort of the the feelings about that and the possibility of that actually moving forward and and happening.
2: Yeah. So one of the kind of historical or 10,000-foot kind of background pieces to this is this strong tradition in South Korea of regionalism and regional conflict. So, for example— Um, There are different reputations of the provinces. Like in the Southeast province, that is like a conservative area. The Southwest province and Jeju Island, those were like the radical kind of red areas. Um, And so in the kind of historical memory of South Korea, um, where you come from um, determines like who, what kind of person you're going to be. It might, um, you know, back in the day when there was a lot of anti-communist fervor, there still is. But when it was even worse, if you were from that Southwest region, you like couldn't get a job. It was assumed you had like a communist bloodline, this sort of thing. And so these regional dynamics, um, in some ways to kind of alleviate and spread out the wealth accumulation and to um, try to go against this tradition of regional discrimination. There have been different laws over time in South Korea that have basically encouraged development away from Seoul and discouraged development towards Seoul. So Seoul has one fifth of the population. If you go out a little bit further, it's much more than that. So there's a huge concentration of Korean people up there. So on some level, like a relocation of government functions away from Seoul ma- does make sense. Both to spur development in other parts of the country and to alleviate congestion, et cetera. Um, so, that is, I think, a credible reason for this Hejong City thing. Um, some government offices in South Korea have also been relocated, for instance, to Jeju Island and stuff like that. So, there have been like experiments over the years of moving around. Um, and yes, certainly the movement away from the DMZ is part of that too. And you guys may know that. Um, this is also part of the U.S. forces Korea U.S. ROK alliance consolidation. So s- over the past twenty years, basically there has been a plan to so to relocate all of the U.S. troops and like over a hundred installations that exist on the Korean Peninsula into two hubs one in the center of the country and one in the south of the country. That is, again, to move the troops down from the DMZ and to have more of an operational base that's away from the North Koreans. So some of that is kind of behind this Seoul to Sejong City um, thing. We'll see what happens. I mean, I think part of the resistance to it is like people like living in Seoul. (laughs) And, you know, people who work for the central government don't really want to live in Sejong City. (laughs) Um, So it has never really been
1: popular with the bureaucrats. So now that we're on security, I think this is a good place to, to talk about North Korea. Um, as we mentioned when we did our news roundup, uh, the North Koreans appear to have yeah. tested uh, an ICBM. It's unclear which type, uh, but they appear to have tested an ICBM earlier today. Uh, it's March 24th, I should say, Thursday, that could reach the United States. Um, so this is an issue despite... Um, you know, Ukraine taking everybody's attention. This is an issue that is clearly uh, coming back on the radar in a, in a big way. Uh, my first question is not about politics or, or how Yoon can be expected to handle North Korea. I do want to get into that. Uh, my first question is more general. Um, when North Korea conducts these weapons tests, I mean, most of them, the the vast majority of them are short-range missiles, rockets, artillery, things that would obviously be trained on South Korea in the event of a conflict. Uh, When they conduct a test like today's, an ICBM test, that's not something that they would use against South Korea. That's something they would use against the United States. I wonder what the... I'm curious what the, the sort of reaction to tests like this uh, is in South Korea, whether it's, uh, you know, this isn't meant for us, this isn't, you know, they're not sending a message to us, or if it's uh, more nervous because this is the kind of test that gets the United States attention uh, and raises tensions uh, with right. North Korea in a way that would inevitably, you know, f- draw South Korea into a conflict if if one happened.
2: Yeah. It's a good question. I think, um, so, I mean, from a sort of, guy on the street angle i don't think south koreans really care that much <laughs> they don't pay a whole lot of attention to that. I think like the u.s and japan and you know we get much more worked up about the activities of north korea but the south koreans on some level are kind of used to just this roller coaster that's been going on for 70 years right um i think the north koreans lasted this like four years ago five years ago so um you know 2017 certain- yeah certain pattern to this right if there's a change in administration in south korea or especially the u.s you know there there's a kind of acting up um traditionally in south korea the conservatives like Yoon, are um you know you kind of think of them as being anti-north korea in a way that the liberals aren't etc so you do see the north koreans respond to electoral politics in south korea in these particular ways um I think, from the perspective of the South Korean government, they are very concerned about the ICBMs because they do um, worry about how the U.S. will react, what it'll mean for the U.S. forces Korea. I saw that South, the South Korean military, I think, was doing some drills in response to the testing of yes. the North Koreans. So there, there definitely is concern about yeah. that. Yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, certainly you know i think from for somebody like moon he's thinking like okay this is going to freak out the americans then that's going to put pressure on us in certain ways to you know whatever do accede to their military demands um you know it it's it also presents pressures in the areas where the U.S. soldiers are located in South Korea, all of those, or around all of those large bases, those, those relationships can be very tense. And when there are tests and drills and the bases are on high alert and there are lockdowns and stuff, that leads to all kinds of sort of emotional and economic pressures in those those areas as well. So that's one way in which, like, ordinary South Koreans do feel the heat of that. But, yeah, I think um, the U.S.-South Korea alliance, for better or worse, you know, strategically is, is quite real. And so this sense of, okay, that's not directed at us, but of course it is directed at us because we are completely allied with the United States. They're in some sense kind of indistinguishable.
1: What's your sense then of what Yoon's election means for that relationship and in terms of managing uh, the inter-Korean relationship, the uh, U.S.-North Korea-South Korea Korea, uh, relationship? Is it going to make things more difficult i think you know he's i i would i would assume he's more likely to kind of follow america's lead uh, than moon was um and sort of you know let the us drive that that relationship um which may not be very good news uh, but i i'm curious what your uh, your senses of how he he will manage this particular issue
2: so one of the things I actually wish is that there were more of a difference between the liberals and the conservatives in South Korea when it came to this question. I mean, I think in our kind of the stereotypes and assumptions we have is that the conservatives will do exactly what you said. They will follow the U.S., they will be pro-Japan, pro-U.S., anti-North Korea, and the liberals will be the opposite of that. But Moon really kind of did follow Washington on most things, right? Like they took in the THAAD missile defense system. Um, that was hugely controversial to South Koreans and, of course, to China, that is who essentially like boycotted South Korean business after that for a while. And that was a huge hit for Korean businesses. Um, Moon basically went along with what Trump was trying to do with North Korea. So I don't know. I mean, I think, yes, kind of the optics will be that Yoon is following the U.S. and is being very critical of North Korea. What difference it'll actually mean for North Korea policy, I, I really don't know. I mean, yeah, I think it's also very difficult. You know, North. I think North Korea watching is like a, one of the most tricky and kind of like sorcery-like Aspects of foreign policy because you can't really know exactly what's going on inside, and you can make all sorts of predictions. But it also seems like the North Koreans just have their own kind of logic for doing these sorts of things. So I don't really know. I mean, one thing that will probably be different is the extent to which Yoon, um, you know, carry, approves of carrying out uh, further business interactions with North Korea, humanitarian aid, this sort of thing does really differ under the conservatives and, and the liberals. Um, but relations with Washington, I don't know. I don't know beyond our kind of like presumed, you know, assumptions about,
1: about that shape, the shape of that. So this is my last question then, and, and, and it, um, you actually sparked me with your, your, uh, last response there to, to be curious about this. Um, what is the state of North Korea watching in South Korean media? Because I'm sure you, you're familiar with the pathology of North Korea watching in like the U.S. media, where every yeah. time Kim Jong Un changes shirts, it's like, is he dying? Does he have an illness? <laughs> is something going on? What's happening? What does it symbolize? And it's just like maddening to sort of sort of yeah. watch this uh, right. hair on fire style reporting about every little thing that goes on. <laughs> uh, I'm curious whether there's some of that in South Korea, or if if it's more um, as you as you said about the weapons tests. Like we're, we're you know this is just how things are, and and we yeah. don't get too riled up about it. <laughs>
2: I think people do watch very, very carefully. I mean, one thing is because the two states are technically at war, South Koreans cannot go to the North Korea and certain North Korean materials are off limits. Um, reporting on North Korea can be somewhat tricky from the South um, because of access. So for instance, like certain kinds of websites, like you, an ordinary person in South Korea isn't allowed to go to like North Korean websites or the government websites and stuff like that. But anyway, I mean, most universities and um media people will have access. But uh, that's just to say that I think The texture of it is is slightly different. Like, of course, people watch North Korea extremely carefully, and so they will observe the shirt change as much as the American (laughs) watchers will. But there will be less, yeah, as you say, kind of less hysteria about it, more knowledge of history, more context, more taking it with a grain of salt and sort of knowing that um, these patterns will continue. And also just the real risk that, yeah, you can't get too hysterical about this because you don't want to provoke anything. And if you provoke something, you're the first to die, right? So, I mean, the real the risks of this are just really extreme. I was reading a piece in Foreign Affairs the other day by a famous Korea watcher called Sumi Terry, who comes out of the CIA. And um, you know, the kinds of stuff that are produced by some of these people—they're it, it, just so kind of, um, I don't know, abstract and inhumane. Like she basically went through this kind of scenario about, well, what if we had conducted. Um, Strategic and directed strikes on North Korea in response to X, Y, Z, and kind of playing this out. And you know, I think at the very end of the article, she says something like, "Well, two hundred fifty thousand people would have died immediately in the first day, and so that's probably not a good choice." I'm not but, saying you know, we wouldn't
1: get our hair must but, Exactly, you know.
2: but like, oh sure, but also that would have been something reasonable to consider. I mean, it's just bananas, and you know, and so of course there are crazy people in South Korea doing that kind of thing, like there are anywhere. But I think it's it's I think it's less widespread. <laughs>
1: Okay. Uh, all right. On that note, I think uh, that's on a good that place happy to, note to wrap up. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it's they it's nice people. to know that that we're all the same on some level. We're all. Oh, it's beautiful. You know, every that's time Kim loses Derek. five pounds, he's dying of a wasting disease, and, and we don't know what it is. always looking on but, the bright side of things. Uh, yeah, it's, it's good. Everybody's <laughs> basically the same underneath the surface. Uh, Tammy, thank you again for coming on the program. <laughs> it's been great guys. having you, uh, and your insights on on South Korea are are immense and and very uh, appreciated.
0: And also, <laughs> uh, I, I also want to point people uh, toward Tammy's labor reporting as well. That is her other quote unquote beat uh, and really interesting <laughs> stuff that you should uh, pay attention to. And of course, uh, check out her writing, which is all over the place, uh, including at the New York Times and also her podcast, Time to Say Goodbye. So, Tammy, uh, thanks again. Thanks, guys. <laughs>